those of you who don't know me, there's a running joke that I run really hot. And so if I don't have a fan going on me up here, it's disaster, especially for the people that are sitting right here. It's really, <laughs> really bad. Um, yesterday, you know, we had something really cool happen yesterday. Um, what's that? Oh, I thought you were talking to me. Someone was thinking you were. Menopausing, too. <laughs> 100%. 100% menopausing, that's for sure. I'm gonna, and, and just so you know, I'm going to blame everything on that. <laughs> everything. Well, yesterday we had about, I don't know, about 35 or so uh, college students from all over the West Coast came to our, oh yeah, here's the folks that came. Um, and they came and their, you know, crew, which used to be Campus Crusade for Christ, was having their annual West Coast Conference here in San Francisco. And um, they send groups out throughout the Bay Area to do service projects, mostly outreach and things like that. We had them come, like I told you last year, we had them come and do a spiritual interest survey door-to-door, which was really cool. We thought this year what we need more than anything in this town is prayer. And I got to tell you, it was so cool. It was just a really, really uh, cool time. We, some, of the, some folks here came from our church came with them. They just fanned out throughout Pacifica. Some got in cars, went up to as far as Sharp Park. I know that's not very far for those of you who live up there. Went way over there to Sharp Park and, uh, and uh, the boonies. And then um, people, and then we had them go around for about an hour um, praying and just we had some instructions for them a little bit to help them understand how to do a prayer walk a little bit. So they prayed, they read scripture, all that stuff all over our town. Then they went to the beach for about an hour. And they talked with people at the beach and prayed for them and did all sorts of, it was just really cool. Actually, I found out a group went by Jeremiah's shop and prayed for him at his surf shop. Um, so that was really, that was, that's kind of cool. So yeah, so it was just a really neat time. So know that um, young people that are just fired up for Jesus, and this group is, man, it was so fun to be here and I was listening to them talk about, they debriefed in here afterwards at about four o'clock and just hearing the stories and the, the cool things that happened as, they, as they're going. And thanks to you, Mike, someone from New Life came because they heard you announce it. Thanks for doing that. And uh, so it was just a really neat time. So prayer is a powerful thing. Prayer is huge. And um, a reminder that at 9.15, by the way, we have prayer. Over in the, in the um, community center, we have a prayer time at 9.15 where we spend some time just praising God, praying for folks, confessing our sin, praying for our morning this morning. So really, you're all invited to come to that. And that's no small thing. I think it really is a, it's a time that we, think, that we really believe is a powerful time to gather. So we really want to welcome you uh, to come to that as well. So, all right, let me pray. We're going to jump into God's word. Oh, Father God, thank you so much for a wonderful time of worship. Thank you that... Uh, it's just a time where we can just focus, God. We can, as a body, come together and just worship you and praise your name. Now, God, as we look into your word, God, I pray that your spirit would teach us. Your spirit would, would give me the words to say, God. Um, I pray that nothing comes out of my mouth that is of me. Put me aside, please, God. My insecurities, my pride, put that all aside. And, and I, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us from your word. Your powerful and living and active word, God. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let me get the get a timer going up there. Is that possible? It just helps me to know when I need to say, okay, I'm done. Because I'll just, I'll just keep going. We're going we're gonna to talk about ex- expectations. Ex- what, what expectation is, okay? Expectations. And expectation is, here's what expectation is. Believe, expectation is believing that something is going to happen or believing that something should be a certain way, okay? Believing that something should happen and it should be a certain way. And we all have expectations. We all have different kinds of ex- expectations. And some, oftentimes our expectations are realistic, Realistic, okay? So I'll give, I have a little definition for you. A real expectation is a strong yet sensible or reasonable hope or belief that something will happen. Okay, that's what a reasonable expectation is. It's, it's like the expectation that, hey, I'm going to put a lot of hard work into this project or into doing this certain thing, and I believe and I'm hoping that this hard will work will produce the outcome that I'm hoping for, the desired result that I want. Yet there's also times, I don't know about you, but I've had these where we have unrealistic expectations. 
I have a little definition there for you too. It's unrealistic expectations are those in which we somehow don't recognize the truth about a situation or the potential difficulties involved in achieving what we would like to achieve. Okay, an unrealistic expectation. It's, it's, it's something like, you know, we've all had those, everything from small to big. One of unrealistic expectations would be like expecting that life should be fair, right? I expect life to be fair. Well, that's an unrealistic expectation, right? Or that things or circumstances should, will ultimately make me happy. If I just get that or if I just get to that place or this happens, I'm going to be happy, It's an unrealistic expectation that that's going to maintain ultimate happiness. Or believing, here's here's, how about this one? I believing that I can change the way my friend, family member, or spouse thinks or behaves. (laughs) You're wagging your head way too strongly, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) That is an unrealistic expectation. Let Let me ask you this. Have you ever had what you figured was a realistic expectation go unmet? Ever had that happen? Sure we have. Sure you have. You order a steak at a restaurant. You order it medium rare. What happens? It comes well done. Okay? That's an unmet expectation. You ask your teenager or your spouse to take care of a certain chore before you get home. You get home. It's not done. Ah! Have unmet expectation, or even deeper, you get married, and you're looking forward to this long and, and happy life together, only to find that this marriage isn't turning out at all to be what you expected it to be. Unmet expectations. Here's the truth. Truth is, number one on your notes, if you want to take notes along on your little sheet there, number one is that... It's kind of a no-duh, but, but really, merely expecting something to happen a certain way does not mean it will happen that way. And I think we know that in our head. We do. But so often we get tripped up thinking, oh, I'm sure that's going to happen, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen that way. I mean, take the Christian life, for example. It, I believe really it can be easy at times to have the expectation that because I'm a follower of Jesus, because I'm a child of the King, that life should go, if not fairly smooth, at least somewhat free from the lingering disappointments and sufferings and heartaches, right? We think that that shouldn't linger long. If I'm a truly a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I should be able to get over this. Something should change. This cloud should blow away. After all, don't I have victory in Jesus? This is a big reason why a lot of people just fall out of the faith. They have this expectation that life could go a certain way. Life throws a massive curveball. And it's like, what? Because the expectation was this shouldn't happen to me. This this doesn't make sense. This wasn't in the plan. I can see bumps in the road, but man, this is a wall. This is a tidal wave. That's why a lot of people just back off from their faith. Now, obviously, we do have tremendous victory in Jesus, but we all know that Jesus never told us to expect this trouble-free or disappointment-free life. Remember, as we saw, we looked at this two weeks ago, that difficulty and sufferings are, is not only a part of following Jesus, it's actually something to be seen as a privilege, and a joy. Remember what Jesus said in John 16, 33, and then this is the message translation. He says this, he says, in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart. I've conquered the world. Next slide on there, Scott. That's the, that's the, that verse tells us, listen, Jesus promised you are going to have difficulties in this fallen and broken world, but you can take heart. I've conquered the world. And this is the mindset that helps us to, that helps to dictate really the appropriate expectations of the Christian life. Because so often our expectations are just so off. Number two on your notes. Yes, we will suffer and experience grief, but it's in our suffering and grief that we as followers of Jesus actually find the source 
of being able to flourish in this life. Now, that is so counterintuitive to what we believe, isn't it, in so many ways? So counterintuitive to what the world says. Definitely counterintuitive to what advertising tells us, right? Certain things, we'll take care of th- other things. You know, it'll all be, we got this for you. Something will take care. But the Christian life is not that. It's actually in our suffering. It's in our pain. It's in our disappointment that we actually learn to find the source of flourishing, the source of having the proper perspective on the Christian life. Now, last week in our study through the book of Acts, we saw that the early church was in a place, remember, they were just spreading like wildfire and they were going throughout all the regions and they were experiencing this unprecedented growth and and peace due to, remember, the people were walking in the fear of the Lord and they were experiencing joy from the, and comfort from the Holy Spirit. And this was, this was a tremendous time of growth for the church, not only numerically, but spiritually as well. And we saw that the early believers, remember we focused on Saul last week and, and how he, he took, now he'll, later he'll take the name Paul, but he, they found this motivation to be able to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus and the spreading of the gospel due to their recognition of God's incredible grace and his mercy. Now this week, what's going to happen this morning, the focus is going to shift. The focus is going to shift to the apostles. Specifically, it's going to focus on Peter this morning. And what's going to be, we're going to see is that as Peter is traveling throughout the regions where the gospel has spread, he wanted to go visit all, he wanted to see, okay, how are they doing? So he wants to go visit all these new and these fledgling churches in all these different regions just to see how they were doing. And this morning, we're going to see in two cities, we're going to see firsthand how the the early church's mindset that dictated their expectations of the Christian life. Okay, this is really good stuff for us today as we watch and see what was happening in their lives. So let's look, starting in in chapter 9, verse 32. We'll leave a couple verses there. It says this. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, talking about the churches, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. I tell my kids that all the time. I used to to do that. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we see Peter, he's traveling to these different churches, and he comes to one in the city of Lydda. Now, this is about 25 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and here he comes across this guy named Aeneas, okay? He's, this guy's paralyzed, and he has been bedridden for eight years. Now, think about it. This guy obviously was able to get around before, but now He's having to experience paralysis, not being able to move at all, the loss of all that he was probably able to do before. And we see here that uh, Peter heals him in the name of Jesus. He goes, you're healed in the name of Jesus, and we see there's immediate results to this. And so Peter obviously knew that although that Jesus was not with them any, as, uh, no longer, that Jesus was still at work. Jesus was still at work. Now it was through in and through his people. He was still at work. And now notice Peter, this is interesting. Peter tells Aeneas, make your bed. And that's literally what he says here. He's not just saying, pick up your bed and leave like he did to the, the paralytic, other paralytic. He's saying, make your bed. What a weird thing to tell somebody after you've healed them, isn't it? Doesn't that seem kind of odd? Now, okay, wait, now make your bed. That means get everything in order, put it all in order, get your stuff in order. That just seems so weird. Yet what... Paul, or what what Peter is doing by telling Aeneas to make his bed is what he's doing is letting him know that he no longer needs others to take care of him. He can now take care of himself. He doesn't have to worry about others. The the power of Jesus has, has rid him of the slavery of a paralyzed body. That's power. He's seeing what it's coming from. He's saying, listen, you don't have to rely on anybody anymore. Jesus has set you free. I imagine Aeneas did not walk away from there. He skipped. He had to be jumping. He had to be so excited about what was going on there. 
And we see that as the news of Aeneas' healing spreads, Luke uses a bit of hyperbole here in order to say that really a huge amount or a significant amount of people from both Lydda and a close town, uh, Sharon, turned their hearts to the Lord. Now, here's the interesting thing. We can assume probably that Aeneas was a believer due to the lack of any remarks about him coming to faith afterwards, okay? He was, he was likely, a, Aeneas was likely a believer, yet he was living in paralysis. He was a believer living in paralysis. Now, there are other forms of paralysis than physical paralysis, aren't there? You may have heard of the phrase paralysis by analysis. Ever heard of that before? Paralysis by analysis. This refers to overanalyzing or overthinking a situation to the extent that no action or no decision is ever taken. I know no one here has ever experienced that before, okay? Because of overanalyzing or overthinking, any decision-making or forward motion becomes, becomes paralyzed, We don't do anything. And there are many reasons that we succumb often to paralysis of analysis. Not the least of them is fear. So often it's fear, the fear of making a mistake, the fear of what other people will say. Just, I can't. I'm just not going to do anything. Well, there's another one as well. And this is what we're going to focus on a little bit more this morning. It's the paralysis of the will. Number two on your notes, or number three. Paralysis of the will has to do with knowing that there is something we, we would like or should do or change, yet we just never get around to it. Some people just call that lazy, but there's more to it than that. Paralysis of the will. I mean, this could be anything from cleaning the, out the garage or, or wanting to make, knowing I need to eat healthier or I need to develop deeper relationships or I need to have better time management. But we just never seem to get to it. And the thing is, here's the reality, is reality is that paralysis of the will at times occurs in the Christian or spiritual life as well. We so often deal with this paralysis. We, we know that spending intimate and authentic time with the Lord and with other believers uh, will increase our love and our, and our intimacy and our dependence on Him. We know that, yet we just can't seem to get around to making these things happen. I know none of you know what this is like, <laughs> but right It's so easy for that to happen, this paralysis of the will. We know what we need to do. We know. We just can't seem to make it happen because the reality is, as followers of Jesus, we can expect this, really. We can expect that from time to time to struggle with paralysis of the will. There's going to be times where we will simply find ourselves battling over and over the inclinations of the flesh. This is just a reality. Yet in Peter's visit, now we're going to see his visit to the next city, there's an even more severe condition than paralysis. Look at verse 36. He says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. All right, so here we are introduced to this woman named Tabitha from the city of Joppa, which is located another 25 miles from Lydda, right on the uh, Mediterranean coast there. And she was a follower of Jesus, and we see that she has died. And what's interesting in here, do you notice that not very often does this happen, but Luke seems to make a rather big thing of her name. You see that here? He he tells us that her Aramaic, Aramaic name is Tabitha. But he also tells us that the Greek translation of that name is what everybody wants to be called, right? Dorcas. (laughs) Yeah. 
He says her name, translate that into Greek, is Dorcas. But here's the interesting thing about that name. Dorcas in the, in the, actually means in the Greek, it means a gazelle. It means gazelle, which, and it was an animal in the ancient world that really they saw it as embodying beauty and grace, like a gazelle. It was beautiful and graceful. And what Luke is doing here, he makes a special note of her name because he wants us to know that Tabitha was a woman of grace and beauty, particularly because of all the things that she did, her goodness and her kindness and her charity, especially towards widows. Because we know that in the ancient world, widows were the most helpless, independent people. Tabitha had ministered to their needs, but now she was gone. Her death had left this deep and profound impact on people. Not just the people in her immediate family, but there were other people that had left a huge impact on. And, and the words here that talk about what the widows do with, with Peter here, the, the words here indicate that the widows were actually standing around Peter, and what they were doing is showing him the tunics and the clothes that they were wearing that Tabitha had actually made for them. So they were saying, look, see what she did for us? Look, look, see this, this is, a, I didn't have anything nice to wear. I, everything was worn, look what Tabitha did, gave me some decency, made me feel human again. So they were feeling deeply, deeply the loss of, of Tabitha. And here's the reality, the reality at times that we are going to experience the death of someone that leaves us, not, on, not only us, but many people deeply grieved and in need due to the way that that person lived their life. Have you ever had that happen before? Someone dies and you see that not only is it painful for you, but you see just a vast amount of people and you just go, oh my God, that just go, wow. I was telling a group of people the other day that um, a dentist friend of mine passed away a few years ago. Uh, he'd been in our church for years and years. So my kids were friends with his kids and uh, went to his memorial service at our church and as they were speaking of him, I love, this guy was great. Everybody loved this guy. He was so wonderful that this is how I felt. I literally, literally, there's that word too often used that too much. I literally, in a way, felt like going, I want to go be with Rich. That, that's how it left you. It left you feeling like, I'm ready to, I, I just, you know, I know Jesus is going to be there. That's going to be awesome. But I want to be with Rich. <laughs> yeah. And that's how it, that's how it felt. Recently, this last week, this last week, we had a really dear friend pass away at my last over at my old church. She works at the old church, Sandy, and um, suddenly died. And her son was in my youth group, and just wonderful lady, just incredible, and just suddenly died. And it is just the reverberations are just going out like crazy on that. This 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 is what was happening. In, Tab in Tabitha's life. And this is what happens often in ours as well. Now, you would think that Tabitha's friends here, hearing that Peter uh, was nearby, they would, they would, they would send, when they sent, come, come, come on, we, we need Peter. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would they think, okay, we need Peter to get here? She's, she's died. What do we need? We would think, okay, do we need her to, him to pray? Or, you know, they don't, they've heard of some things he's done, but I don't know. Maybe they thought that he was going to do, he could do something uh, amazing. Maybe they'd heard of his healing of Aeneas. They had heard, oh, hey, just a town over, he had healed Aeneas. Maybe there's this possibility he could do something. I don't know what, but maybe he can do something. Or maybe they were remembering back when they had heard, or maybe even someone that had possibly seen. Remember when we looked out about a month ago or so when Peter healed that lame beggar at the gate who was begging, he just wanted something. And, and Peter told him instead, he said in Acts 3, he said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Remember, we saw the man got up and he was walking. Remember, then later on, he was seen in the, in the temple, dumping around, praising God and everything. Maybe they had heard about that. Or maybe they had heard that, that they'd, or maybe seen how after performing many signs and wonders with all these people, and remember, people began to gather around Peter, and remember, they began to bring their sick friends and their family members. Remember, they were just laying them in the street. And what were they hoping for? They were just hoping that Peter's shadow 
would fall on them. So, they heard. so maybe this is the stuff that they heard. Maybe they had, maybe this is what they knew. But really, the point is, whatever they knew, ultimately they seemed to know that at least through Peter, Jesus was still at work. I love that song, Jesus is working for our good. They knew that that was still happening, that his power was still available to those in need. Now, look what Peter does next. Look at verse 40. He says, he came to them, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And, he op- and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So here we see that Peter sends, out all, sends everybody out of the room, okay? Sends them all out, gets on his knees, and he prays and he intercedes for Tabitha. We see that he then turns to her and commands her to get up. And she immediately, she's resuscitated from the dead. And he presents her to the people. And it says specifically, including the widows. Could you imagine, put yourself in that scene. They're just, she's gone. We loved her so much. She took such care of us. All of a sudden, she comes walking through the door. Just think about how they were feeling when they saw that happen. It had to be just an amazing feeling. And once again, as with Elida, due to this miracle, we see that many people came to faith in Jesus. And then we see that Peter stays there in Joppa, um, and he enjoys the hospitality um, of, of this tanner, this Simon the Tanner, which holds a whole other story that really sets the tone for the next week, for next week, when the ministry to the uh, Gentiles really kicks into high gear. This guy was a Gentile, probably, a, a tanner, a guy who worked with dead animals and things that Jews just didn't do. Now, there's some significant comparisons we can make with between Peter's raising Tabitha from the dead and Jesus doing the very same thing with a ruler of a synagogue named Jairus. I don't know if you remember the story of Jairus. It's a story that's found in the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. It says, remember, Jairus comes to, to Jesus and begs him to come and heal his daughter. Remember, in this story, the same thing happens. Two guys come and beg Peter to come to meet to Tabitha. Jesus met, wep- met weeping women. That's a hard one to say. Met weeping women. He met weeping women when at Jairus' home. So did Peter at Tabitha's home. Jesus sent people out of the room. So did Peter. And so also Jesus told the girl to rise, and he took her hand and she rose. Peter did the same thing. He said, rise, and he took Tabitha's hand and she rose. Here's the big difference, though. Here's the big difference in this story, in between these two stories. Peter did something that Jesus did not do. He knelt and prayed. First thing he did, knelt and prayed. Jesus didn't do that. See, Peter was completely dependent on the resurrection power of Jesus because he knew, once again, that Jesus was still powerfully at work. He was still powerfully at work then and just like he is now. Just like he is now. Let number four in your notes. You see, the lesson, and this is a long one, the lesson we can take away from these two encounters Peter has That as followers of Jesus, we should expect that we will from time to time encounter bouts with spiritual paralysis, along with grief, disappointment, and loss, and sometimes for long periods of time. Yet, these times are meant to show us our deep need of something beyond our own resources. Something beyond our own resources. My friend Mark Mitchell says this, and he wrote this once. He says, a big part of the Christian life is surrendering to God in the midst of circumstances we would have never chosen. Ever found yourself there before? Well, how am I going to deal with this? Our gut reaction, our knee-jerk reaction is usually no. How do we fix this? How do we get out of it? How do we solve it? How do, we, how do I do whatever I need to do to feel better? 
But we see here that a big part of the Christian life is letting God be God. Letting God do his thing in the midst of what we're going through, knowing that, hey, I didn't expect this. I would never choose this. But not allowing that circumstance, not allowing what is happening to dictate how I'm going to view God in my life. That's the lesson that we take away from this. The truth is that the truth that is meant to help dictate the expectations we have of the Christian life is that no matter what is happening in our life, no matter what, Jesus is still at work with resurrection power, as the song said, for our good. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? I got to tell you, there are times I wake up in the morning. I love what you said about waking up in the morning because so often I wake up in the morning and I go, where did that cloud come from? And I have to force myself to tell myself the truth that that whatever I'm waking up with that has to do with whatever I'm facing that day or whatever I've been having to go through, whatever, that I want to let that consume me. But I have to work hard to tell myself, wait a second, Jesus is still at work. He's still at work for my good in my paralysis, in the death in the disappointment, in the discouragement, he is still at work. Because if I don't tell myself that, I will get so bogged down in that disappointment that that will rule me. I know none of you can relate to that either. It's just me. But isn't that how it works so often? It's a powerful truth, but it's also a powerful lie to let our circumstances dictate how we see God. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that our circumstances are hard, that we're not in pain, that we're not hurting. That doesn't dictate it at all. But that's the way it works. So how do we go about practically experiencing this resurrection power? How do we make this practical? How do we know that we can experience it, this power to give us hope and, and joy and, con and contentment, even in the midst of heartache and disappointment? Like I've said before, I'm not gonna, there's not going to be one, two, three, here's the points. Once you get them down, life is going to be cool. Life is hard, but Jesus is there, and we're going to talk about this. Look, number five on your notes, we experience this resurrection power when we completely, not only when we completely surrender to God, but as we invite him to awaken ours and others' hearts to his grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. Notice that in these two stories, we see that as a result of these two miracles, many people are turned to the Lord. So many that you, Luke uses hyperbole and says everybody did. I mean, that's how many people did. He does it. The whole town came. Because that's what it felt like, so many people, because of these, of these miracles. And that's what their purpose was. That's the purpose of these miracles. The purpose of the miracles wasn't just so that Aeneas could walk again. It wasn't just so that uh, Dorcas could get back to do what help. Dorcas would probably rather be in heaven. What a jip. <laughs> you know? No, but the reason was to show that Jesus is still at work. There's, there's power of Jesus is still available today. And this should cause us to, this should help us with how we see God. This is, this is how it should form our expectations about who Jesus is. And cause us to turn to him and not turn towards our stuff and our disappointment. And by the way, like I told you, when I'm preaching this kind of stuff, most of the fingers are pointing this way. They really are. I need to hear this this morning desperately. There's some deep disappointment going on in my life right now that I'm really struggling with. I need this. We, I need to know the truth of who Jesus is for me. Have you ever thought... Have you ever thought that the struggles in your life are not to be seen as things to simply weather or simply to get through or to simply endure, but these struggles are opportunities to learn to depend on God to provide you with the peace and with the joy and with the perseverance that only he and he alone can provide? 
That's the perspective that we're supposed to have. That's the perspective that as we we're learning to grow towards, to see our difficulties, to see the difficult stuff we go to, the hardships, the frustrations, the disappointments as opportunities for God, not to say, God, why? Please get me out of it. You know, the miracle would be, God, that I would turn to you would be if you just got rid of it. Isn't that our prayer? I will praise you. And we even pray that way for people, don't we, often? We pray, God, we just pray that you would release them from that pain. You would release them from that thing so that, that we can praise you for how good you are. God could do that, and oftentimes he does. But oftentimes, that's not a very good prayer. A better prayer when someone says, will you pray for my so-and-so or pray for me when I'm sick, we're dealing with this, we've got the situation, our family, whatever, is to pray that God would use this, that God would enable them to have the courage and the strength and the ability to say, God, I don't bring anything to the table to bring satisfaction to my life. I don't bring anything to the table to make myself, to make life all put together. It has to be you. It has to be you. And I know, like I said, preaching it myself, that is so hard, especially when it lingers and it continues to go on. God, what? what? God's saying, I got you. I've got you. In the midst of this paralysis, in the midst of this death and this hurt and this pain, I am here. I'm at work. Trust me. And don't put expectations that I should work a certain way or that your life should certain way, work a certain way. I sent my son to be tortured and die for you. I love you. I got you. Kind of shapes our perspective a little bit on the Christian life, doesn't it? That's what this is meant to. Number six on your notes. It's the awareness and the constant reminding ourselves of the truth that Jesus is still at work that is meant to dictate our expectations of the Christian life, not a problem-free life. How often do we hear say something good goes, happens, goes, oh, you're blessed. Or God blessed us by doing this. But how often do we say, God is really blessing me because he's really allowing me to go through something really hard that is forcing me to trust in him. That is a blessing. What a blessing. We get a tweak, don't we? American Christianity, blessing equals prosperity, right? That's blessing. But blessing is when we learn to deeply depend on him and have the mindset, expectations that, you know what? I don't expect things to be easy. I expect them to be hard sometimes. Because those are, that's a blessing. Allows me to lean in, into the Lord. We call this outlook oftentimes in the Christian world, the victorious Christian life. You've heard that word before. It's been misused in many ways too. But the victorious Christian life. I love it when dogs come to church. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Maverick's here. Um, we call this outlook the victorious Christian life. But here's the problem with the idea of the victorious Christian life. So oftentimes, the problem with this is that we have come to expect it to mean this guarantee of health, wealth, and prosperity, right? That's the victorious Christian life. The victorious life, Christian life is overcoming my doubt instantly. It's overcoming my fears. It's overcoming problems. It's overcoming sickness. That's the victorious Christian life, right? That's what we so often think it's all about that happening. It's a life where we feel like we're entitled to the, as few amount of struggles as possible, right? That's the victorious life. Yeah, but all, as we've already seen, number seven, last one in your notes, the victorious Christian life is the life that is lived by faith in a moment-by-moment moment surrender to God. That is the victorious Christian life. You want to know what the Victoria Christian, Christian life is, victorious Christian life? The victorious Christian life, go visit people that live in difficult situations, not only here, but in other countries where they're persecuted for their faith or they're extremely in extreme poverty, all these things, and they love Jesus. And, it's, and in some ways, it feels easier for them to love Jesus because they don't have all the trappings that we have to rely on, right? Yet we do everything we can because we have the access to the trappings, and the trappings aren't wrong. It's relying on them for, our, for goodness 
and for satisfaction. 1 John 5, 4 says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And here's that word. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, that I'm healthy. Is that what it says? This is the victory that overcomes the world, that our family finally got straightened out. That wayward kid finally came back. No. What's the victory? Our faith. Our faith is the victory. It's this faith. It's believing that Jesus is still at work with resurrection power to not only save people, but to provide this peace and this joy and contentment even in the midst of our deepest pain. That is what victory in Jesus is all about. Key to living this victorious life this, this life that has real expectations, realistic expectations of Christian life, is not expecting our lives to be free of struggles, but learning to invite Jesus, and we've said this before, inviting him into the struggle. Not to say, Jesus, take away the struggle, then we'll get close. No, Jesus, because that's what he wants to do, invite him into the struggle and thanking him for the opportunity to have to depend on him and on only on him for true peace, joy, and contentment because we believe that he is still at work for our good. A couple questions. First question for y'all. What are some things that hinder us from having proper expectations of the Christian life? We've talked about some of this already, but what are some things that hinder us from having proper expectations of the Christian life? The media, like, expound on that, Mike. What do you mean? That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I would add to that, though. I, that's great. My, I love that. I would add another word to that in front of media, social. <laughs> Think about it. How often are people soci- put, putting on Instagram and on Facebook, wow, wow, life is really hard and terrible right now. It's typically, look at this new recipe. Look at the, you know, look at the thing. And that's fine. But yeah, we, we just, <laughs> Don't get you started, right, Todd? <laughs> what else? What else are some things that hinder us from having a proper expectations of the Christian life? Yes. Yes. Right, exactly. That's so great. Yeah, our focus. And once again, that comes to that, that, um, that um, paralysis of the will thing. I was able to binge Netflix, but I seem to don't have time to read my Bible. You know, and that's not a guilt thing. I'm just saying that's where our, that's a will thing. It's a, that's a, we should, it's a legitimate struggle. So, yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, so good. All right, second question. How can knowing and reminding ourselves that Jesus is still at work help us to dictate our expectations of what the Christian life should look like? Just practical. How, how, how can reminding ourselves of this, that he's still at work, help to dictate our expectations? Yeah. Well, we know we're not doing it alone. Yes. Own, yeah. It's not, it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is it? Yes. So good, Jeremiah. Yeah. What else? Start looking for where God is working. Yeah. So good. Yes. Where, and it's interesting you say that, Becky, because when we send people out, when we sent the group out on that prayer walk yesterday, one of the things we said a couple times was, as you're walking, try to be aware of what the Holy Spirit is bringing to, your, bringing to mind. And it's a lot easier on a prayer walk because that's where we're focused, right? But yeah, doing that in every, where is God already working? Where is he at work? I don't know, for me, I have to get rid of my amnesia and I have to remember, God, wow, you've been so good. You never fail. You, you never fail. You're still going to be there. So, yeah, good one. What else? Anything else? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. 
yeah. 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 And that's where fellowship of the believers comes in. And that's where coming together and being in, in community and in one another's lives. Because I don't know about you, but I need other people to help me to gaze at the right thing. Because <laughs> if I don't help, have people help me, I know where I'm going to go. I need that help. I need people, these guys I meet with right here on a regular basis. We, tell, we talk to each other the truth because we know we're desperate for each other to tell the truth in our, in our lives. Um, all right, last question. Uh, what are some things that we can do that would remind us that Jesus is for us and still at work in our lives? We, already, we just mentioned a couple, but any, anything more on a practical note you can think of, Veronica? Was that, oh, you were just moving your hands like being a cheerleader. Okay, good. That's a, oh, I, I see that hand. Are we on number three? Number three. Number three is, yeah. What are some things we can do that would remind us that Jesus is for us and still at work in our lives. We've already, we just talked about a couple. Anything more? This is great practical takeaway stuff here. Yeah. Just look back at what you've done in the past. Yes, looking back. You've been so faithful. Yep. Perfect. What else? Yeah. Even as simple as just common grace type stuff is every breath we're taking, you know, like just yeah. Yeah, I'm alive. Yeah, for me, someone that suffers, has suffered in the past with mental illness, often I'll walk, I'll walk, I'll be on my prayer walk or something, I'll just go, God, thank you for a day of good mental health. You know, just those things like that that I take for granted where I remember the times when I was suicidal or when I was deeply depressed or deeply anxious, and I'm not today. <laughs> you know, God is good. Yeah, exactly. What else? Anything else practical? Staying in the Word. Totally. Yes, good one, Mike. Yeah. Yes. Yep. That's that whole kind of gospel fluency that we were talking about back. Remember, we were talking about how do we speak? How do we learn? And it's like, remember we talked about it's like learning another language. So we have to be immersed in it. What does it mean to speak the truth of the gospel into the every or everyday ordinary circumstances of life? Because we're not used to doing it, are we? We're used to giving advice. <laughs> but, but we're not used to saying, okay, what does the scripture, what does the truth of scripture have to say about what you're going through or what you need to hear? So good. That was, that's so good. Anything else? Any other practical takeaways? Yes. Carolyn, there's something very powerful about naming the darkness the darkness and naming the truth. It's just like in therapy. If you've ever been in therapy before, what a big part of therapy is labeling the things that are lies. Labeling, like we've talked about, that stinking thinking and labeling it. Say, that's that. So in turn, I need this. So good. Anything, any last comments or anything? I see that hand now. <laughs> So powerful. And that goes back to the therapy thing. And often when I was doing therapy with people before, oftentimes it was about helping the people identify the strengths and the victories that have happened because the, the, the losses and the defeats are so huge. We don't see and helping them see how strong you really are. You're a lot stronger than you think. Take this though and flip it on its head is God is a lot more available and a lot more strong and a lot more at work than you think he is. So remember that. So good. 
So good. Well, this is, a, this is a, oh, yes. Don't tell me. Don't say that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So true. Anybody got that waiting thing licked? Woo. Man, that's hard. That's a, but that's, I think, ex- that's a great point, Becky. That's exactly where we learn. Because if we, we didn't have to wait, we wouldn't learn perseverance. We wouldn't learn trust. We wouldn't learn what it means to be content from him and who I am in him. I would be more content on, okay, whew, it got taken care of. So just, uh, I hope this is encouraging to you this morning, those of you, especially if you're facing anything, that, that Jesus, is a, Jesus is at work. He is. And you might be going through something deep right now. And as we move into a time of communion, to be, to be focusing on. This is a great reminder. As we move into communion, as you come up and you, um, get, you take the elements, there'll be people up front to pray. I would encourage you to take advantage of praying with somebody. Even if it's not someone that comes up, a prayer person, if you want to get someone and pray off to the side, just grab them. Please do that. Because once again, like Jeremiah said, this isn't about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need Jesus. And oftentimes we need Jesus. We help people to help us recognize we need Jesus. So Father God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that Jesus is still at work for our good. And we thank you now that we get to be reminded that as we remember the body and the blood of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took, likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, so God, we come remembering what you've done for us. Help us to recognize where we've fallen short during this time, but at the same time recognize your grace, mercy, and forgiveness.